Hello, Dogalos. It's me, Bob Sham, your buddy, Bob. Welcome to another episode of The Documenteers, the podcast where we discuss a documentary. Myself and a good friend, a rotating cast of experts. We discuss a documentary and review it with our Herzog rating scale. Welcome. We're getting closer to the holidays. And Akil is with me on this episode as we discuss the documentary. It's on Netflix by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks. And yes, Rashida Jones is the daughter of Quincy Jones. We are talking about the Netflix film Quincy. Everyone knows Quincy. He's like a human arc for the history of music. Akil is on this one. We always go along, but it was a lot of fun putting this one together, going through a lot of music. It's a very musical episode. And how else should it be in a film about the life of Quincy Jones? And this will be, I believe, we'll probably hear from Akil again, but this, I believe, is Akil's last episode of this year. But you will hear him in 2019. We're going to drop the episode Love Gilda about Gilda Radner. So sit tight for the next year. Plenty changes coming up on the Documenteers. Next week on the show, Angela and I, it will be our Thanksgiving episode, and Angela and I are doing the PBS American Experience film, because the, this Pickens is slim on Thanksgiving documentaries. We are talking about The Pilgrims by Rick Burns, and it's full of reenactment fun, and we are going to do that one with you on Thanksgiving week. Get a little into some history, a pure historical documentary. I just want to say, because I forgot to say it in the episode, you can follow us on certain social media, iTunes, Facebook fan page, at Documenteers. We have 8Tracks playlist. There's some short playlists. Just extra fun stuff at 8Tracks.com, Documenteers. Shoot us an email. We love them. Documenteerspodcast at gmail.com. And five stars interview on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's done so. And uh, we could use more of that. And you can listen to us on just about anywhere. Subscribe. Recommend us. What's your favorite episode of the Documenteer? If you've been listening for a little bit, share that one with other people. When I edit Documenteer's episodes, I often find sounds and phrases by some of my co-hosts that work into the lexicon. Like, for example, Drew has one. Drew, who does the 30 for 30 films, is his. Backroom whispers. And I'm happy happy to say that I have one for a kill. It's this sound right here. Uh, I'm so pumped to have a lot of fun with that. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, Ginger's got one too. I like circle jerks. It's just uh, things to amuse myself in the process of this. Uh, but fuck this, let's get on with this movie. This movie on Netflix, Quincy by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks. Uh, and please keep on docking. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Are you on the paddle drums? Mm-hmm. Just found a good one. Go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. <laughs> Go, Go hang. hang a salami. <laughs> I love those. the same things anymore <laughs> no i mean you can you just yeah. you, if you, you want just, like 20 if, vulture articles written about you or you want to be president yeah yeah or you can be president <laughs> is that too <laughs> who'd want to do that akil bobby 
How you doing? I'm good, man. Man, we you? watched Quincy. Quincy Delight Jones. I did not know that was his middle name. I did not know. <laughs> it doesn't reveal it until he reveals what he names his son. Right. Who is the third. Yeah. Well, actually, when you see his father, because yeah. his father is Quincy Delight Jones Sr. And I was like, wait, he's get, his so middle name is... Delight. He's got like a stripper middle name. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't lean on that. I feel yeah, like I, I if mean, my middle name was Delight, I'd make everyone say it. In the music industry? Yeah. I mean, come on, man. Or at least start like your company call it delight records or something no it's just quincy jones productions very straightforward he, he has to save all his mental stuff for uh the music yeah yeah i took a lot of notes our episodes go long like a lot we got a streamline man we gotta we gotta rein it in i think our episodes are really good i think there's some good laughs in there but they always go fucking <laughs> long as shit I, I forgot to mention this to you since we last recorded we got our first negative review yes I'm really proud of it. I'm not saying that like I want everyone to give me negative reviews. I need the opposite of that. We've made it. But the per- the thing that they complained about was in our I Think We're Alone Now episode when I played you all those versions of I Think We're Alone Now. I think it read, I tried, I really did. But after like 20 minutes, they just keep playing the same song over and over again. So, Akil, I have to ask, did you write that review? It was you. I had a proxy do it for me. (laughs) You have a (laughs) co-strider. I thought you were going to say that someone was going to complain about the fact that you left a version out. That would have been great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want those. Yeah. (laughs) One star because I forgot. I appreciated your varied (laughs) versions of I think you're alone. But I I think you may have missed one that was done by this really obscure band (laughs) from Iceland. (laughs) If anyone wants to send me emails like that. But we watched a film about Quincy Jones. We all know who Quincy Jones is. He's a living vessel for American popular music going back to like... (laughs) 60 years? Yeah. I mean, he's been in the business for 70 years, which is insane. Holy smokes. I mean, the weight of watching this guy. There's so many celebrities in this movie. Let's try to name all the celebrities that appear. Let's just go back and forth. Just off the top. Just spitball it. Okay, go ahead. You name one. Well, Michael Jackson. That's an easy one. Uh, Willie Nelson. Lionel Richie. Lady Gaga. Tony Bennett. Dr. Dre. Snoop Dogg. Jay-Z. Beyonce. Barack Obama. Ray Charles. Bill Clinton. <laughs> Is that your Bill Clinton that's impression? My, that's my Bill Clinton impression. You gotta work on that, man. Akil, Akil, let me ask you a question. Where's the pussy at? Akil. I did not have physical I relations. Not, I'm a vegan. I never do that. I was about to say I'm Episcopalian, but that's not. What's the thing where you don't eat fish? <laughs> I don't know. Pesca, no. Mary J. Blige was there. <laughs> Billy D. Williams. Herbie Hancock. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Chick Corea. Al Jarreau. Carlos Santana. Frank Sinatra. Sarah Vaughn. Dinah Washington. Duke Ellington. Louis Armstrong. Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> did I say Lionel Richie already? Yeah. I did. Count Basie. Oprah Winfrey. Dinah Washington. I said Dinah Washington already. Steven Spielberg. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. I mean, the fact that we get to continue to do this as long as, as we have just shows you how many celebrities are in this movie. Dave Chappelle. 
Was he in it? I don't think he was in it. He was mentioned. Showed up for a second. Oh, he did? Okay. I mean, they're all, some of them were mentioned. Like, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of the old uh, musicians are dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chick Corea. Uh, Al Jarreau, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Al Jarreau, rest in peace. But all that to say, he knows a lot of fucking famous people. And there's a reason for that. There's at <laughs> least two scenes where he's just like, one, he's he's setting up a party. He wants setting up the uh, live production for the opening of the Smithsonian African American History Museum, which Angela and I went to when it was before it was officially open, when it was like limited viewing. Really? So yeah, it's very. It'd be interesting to go back and see the whole thing again. He just will like tell an assistant and like throw a bunch of yeah. names at an assistant. He's like, so who do you uh, who should we who are you think? And he's like, oh well, you know all the greats, uh, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Uh, Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff. Like he doesn't yeah. leave out Jeff. No, he like, says <laughs> DJ Jazzy Jeff first. Yeah, yeah, they want to do a segment at the Lincoln Memorial or something, and he says Oprah. That's the first name he says. Yeah, the second name he says is DJ Jazzy Jeff. hilarious to me and then the assistant is like oh and will smith and he's like yeah 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 but it's just crazy that that made me happy that yeah. he was like i'm not gonna forget about you jeff i mean if you think about it though musically dj jazzy jeff is probably the superior musician if you put it in the well i mean world. he was the one that did all the actual music yeah i mean he was the I mean, Will Smith's raps, these were like kid raps, basically. Yeah. I mean, he had a couple of songs. Like, you know, Summertime, that's that's always going to be like, that's a jam. That's a straight up Summertime. I mean, every summer you will hear that song being played in Do you think car. Did he write his own rhymes? I'd be shocked if he did. I don't know. Maybe he did. I think he did. Well, we spent just spent a lot of time on Will Smith. But Quincy <laughs> shows love to DJ Jazzy Jeff. Yeah, he totally does. And, and Quincy's a musical genius. Duh. So I guess it makes sense that he would want to. Maybe he knows more about Jeff's input into that whole thing than we do. Yeah, I feel like yeah. him just dropping his name makes me like reconsider DJ Jeff. The fact Jeff. that he thought of him first before yeah. Will Smith. Second after to Oprah. Then the list ends in like <laughs> Barack it. Obama. We're going to start with Oprah <laughs> and Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> John Legend, Usher, Colin Powell. Mary J. Blige. He throws Colin Powell's name probably equal to like Ray Charles because yeah. he and Ray Charles were like best friends. Yeah. That, but, that, that scene where he calls Colin Powell. Yeah. And just like basically Colin. convinces him. Colin. You know, I need you. I need you, Colin. There's a lot going on yeah. in this. I took 14 pages of notes. I We shouldn't go through all of Dude, them. Dude, I don't know how, how you took that many notes. That's, that's, a, you have a problem. But yeah, <laughs> but this was directed by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks and Rashida Jones also wrote it. And I will say this isn't set up. This is following Quincy in his old age. He's like 80 when this movie starts. It seemed like a lot of the footage, especially the, what Rashida took happens over a span of a few years. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's a personal touch to it. And it's not like, let's sit a Snoop Dogg in a seat in this room and have him suck Quincy's dick. No, we see them live sucking Quincy's dick when he goes to like award shows and everyone's like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. It, it, it's, it felt very much like a, a daughter's love letter to her dad. There's probably some stuff in his life that didn't make the cut. <laughs> Yeah. Let's just say in this version. Sure. Which is fine because it's his daughter. Like, you wouldn't, I, I felt like there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not sure if maybe if it was an attempt on her part to get to know her dad better, mm-hmm. which a lot of times you tend to do as your parents are getting older, particularly, you know, when they start having health problems and stuff. Yeah. And she just sort of maybe had the resources to, to do this versus just like we would do, which is, yeah. you know, awkwardly try to talk to our parents about their lives and, and probably to, get nothing to stop drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how uh, he has some health scares in this movie because he's quite like, a few he's health older, scares, and he's telling Rashida, "Is like, well, I ain't drinking no more drink. I gotta stay straight." And after he comes out of the hospital the first time, he looks really good. Yeah, and then I think ten minutes later, he's at some I don't know gallivanting around because he's Quincy Jones, and anybody anywhere will let him into any place. <laughs> and he's like. Where's the vodka? Where's the vodka? Hey, where the, where the balls off the pool table? <laughs> right, honey? Yeah, Dad. I never quite figured out how much success he had with the not drinking because it never really showed him drinking yeah. after that point. There was enough There's to... Sh- a- to show that he had an issue. Yeah, yeah. Good that it wasn't so lasered in on that. Yeah. They cut a scene where he is announcing the guests he wants for a special pool party. Have you heard about this? No. Let's say you're the assistant. I want to have a pool party. <laughs> I'm going to call it Black Splash. Now, we're just not going to let anyone at this pool party. This is a very special guest list <laughs> to invite to Black Splash at Quincy Jones's house. Here we go. Jaleel White, <laughs> Reginald Vell Johnson, <laughs> Tamara Mowry, not Tia. Don't motherfucking invite Tia. Mike Tyson, OJ Simpson, Stacy Dash, John Lee Malvo, Willow Smith, not Jaden motherfucking Smith. Willow only. Sean Garrison, who played Waldo Geraldo Faldo on Family Matters. The dude who played Washington on Welcome Back, Connor. Mark Curry, Ben Carson, Omarosa. Dr. Dre, the host of MTV Raps, not the rapper. <laughs> Emmanuel Lewis, Kanye West, Common, Franklin from the Charlie Brown comic strips, Cat <laughs> Williams, your mother, and Rachel Dolezal. Sounds like a great party. I love that you couldn't make the effort <laughs> to find out the name <laughs> of the dude who made <laughs> Yeah. I think uh, Quincy thought he just didn't feel like looking. At <laughs> he didn't know who played Ho- Waldo Geraldo Faldo. Uh, that's not like a great party. Yeah, it sounds like a very unique party. I think Common's like the most normal person at this pool party. Anyway, <laughs> we this movie opens up on pictures of records, awards, awards after awards, pictures of him hanging with celebrities. I am not a person who is generally impressed by things like that, <laughs> but this was just. He really made you appreciate just the scale of this career that he has had over the decades. Just so many gold and platinum albums on the wall. I didn't realize how many albums he had cut just as like Quincy Jones. This is a Quincy Jones work versus, you know, this album is done by Dinah Washington. 
and he was it was produced and arranged. Right. And I assume every song we heard was produced or composed oh, yeah. in some way by yeah. Quincy Jones. There is a signed picture of Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney when they did The Girl Is Mine. To show that no one's perfect, <laughs> that we don't hit it out of the park every time. I would definitely go with a say, say, say. If you're going to go with a Michael Jackson, <laughs> Paul McCartney duo, yeah. say, say, say is the one you want to go with. The dog girl is mine. I hate that song so much. <laughs> you're meant to. No one says the doggone girl. <laughs> As a kid, I hated that song. Yeah. I mean, I just recognize this is the dud. This is the one I'm going to skip over I, every I time. I think that was a lot of 80s children's first realization on what was corny. Our introduction <laughs> to corniness might have been. It was definitely my introduction to Paul McCartney. Yeah. I don't know who the hell Paul McCartney oh, man. was when I was a kid. I must have really corrupted Yeah, him. I mean, it, it, I, that was him as far as I knew. I mean, it's all downhill in the McCartney legacy from there. Now, Quincy... Back to Quincy, the subject of this podcast. Quincy Jones. He says that between Ray Charles and Sinatra, I learned how to live. You've got to work on your Quincy Jones. <laughs> what about my Bill? <laughs> what if I did Bill more? Quincy's way more cool. You got to talk hey. like, you cool now. <laughs> like hey. that. He also goes around asking people, what's this sign? He's still such a dad. He still has like that sort of, he kind of, there are some aspects of him that reminded me of my dad a little bit. I love the way that he's always just so, have you noticed every scene he's like leaned back on the couch? Like he's almost laying down. Yeah. He's just kind of like engulfed in the pillows of the sofa. He always looks like he's wearing pajamas, uh, which always looks, for some reason, looks cool on him. It's good to see him relax because throughout his career, this guy was nonstop. Yeah. He essentially sacrificed families for his career. Just worked constantly. Let's get into 1939. South Side Chicago. Quincy's mother. He's got mommy issues. Tells a story about how people came in, put a straight jacket on his mother. Because she apparently had a... Schizophrenia. Yeah. Dad was a carpenter for gangsters. And the dad took him to his grandmother's house. Because dad had a hard time kind of keeping up. Single parent. Yeah, apparently there wasn't wholesome activities to get into on the streets of South Side of Chicago He's, back in the late 30s. <laughs> he said that when he was a kid, the only people that there was to look up to were gangsters because yeah. those are the ones that seemed to draw the most respect where he was from. That was crazy when he talked about he was showing Dr. Dre his scars. Yeah. He was he pointed to his hand. He said, this one here is when we got caught by one of the wrong gangs and they they stabbed my through my hand and nailed me, nailed my hand to a fence. I was like, holy shit. He was like seven or eight or something years old. That's insane. Yeah. And Dr. Dre was like, oh, I beat up a woman at a house party. <laughs> Take that, Quincy. I used to have a jerry curl. He said his grandma would cook possums and rats because that's just what there was. But his mother would escape from her facility and show up at the house breaking windows and screaming. And she was also very religious. Her madness exasperated religious tendencies. That's, which, which is always, most, which is usually the case with mental illness. I think it's indisputable that if you got a serious mental illness, religion is bad for you. Oh, yeah. Religion is bad for you. Keep keep the crosses away from people with severe mental illness. I've seen The Exorcist. Yeah, I've that's a true story. I've seen tons of episodes of Criminal Minds. 
I know how this shit works. God is bad for you. If you're crazy. If you're crazy. <laughs> Seattle, 1940. That's where they moved because dad worked at a shipyard. And uh, Quincy was talking about how school books in the 40s, it was like black people didn't exist. But one thing he did find was a piano. Then he realized he wasn't a little wannabe gangster at all. He was a fucking music nerd. During that time, a lot of popular music was through the piano and shit like that. Yeah. So like if uh, like the kid in your high school that pulled out the guitar in homeroom. Yeah, especially if you was knew like, how to play like jazz. I mean, the, yeah, that kind of music back like then. Like bebop and shit. Yeah, yeah. Or like, yeah, that kid in school that pulled out the guitar and be like, glycerine. <laughs> I always wanted to beat the fuck out of that kid. Glycerine. Glycerine. He joined a nightclub band at 14. He was good right out the bat. He that's, just I had mean, an affinity. Yeah, that's insane that he was already playing in it, a band at the age of 14. He just clicked. That was his genius. And it was, sky was the limit. Like, as soon as he hit the piano keys, it was like, I get this. And he was playing every instrument under the sun. Sousaphone, piano, trumpet. Well, trumpet was the one he ended up, ended up becoming his love. Like, I, and I didn't even realize Quincy Jones used to play trumpet. I had no idea. We see him composing early on in the film. I'm like, this dude was a fucking composer? I mean, it all made sense, but before watching this movie, I'd hear the name Quincy Jones, and I, first of all, I'd think of Michael Jackson, because... I mean, for our generation, that's yeah. the first thing that's going to come to I mind. mean, essentially, the Michael Jackson, that Mike, that version of Michael that uh, where Michael pretended to have uh, be attracted to women... <laughs> <laughs> that's all quincy it's like quincy talking through michael jackson's voice. off the wall is seminal hand, record. hands down the best michael jackson record yeah i mean without a doubt but it's one of the best albums period it pretty much ended the it was the the closing of the door on the disco era. That that album managed to get in there right at the yeah. end. Of the and it was era. a disco record. Oh, totally. But it was also it was a sophisticated disco record. It was a transitionary record. Yeah. And then Thriller comes out and it's like redefining pop. Quincy and Ray Charles became quick homies. They showed old, like 90s Ray Charles when he's really old. And he's like bouncing around. <laughs> and I used, I forgot how funny I used to think Ray Charles was. <laughs> He doesn't seem as funny bouncing around when he's a young man and you see all of those clips, but when he's old and he's like, hey, hey. <laughs> I mean, it's a podcast. You can't see my killer impression. He's nailing it. Do you, do you remember the video he did back uh, the back on the blog album? Uh, I'll yeah. be good to you. Do you remember that video? Where he's <laughs> no. Like, he, there's a whole lot of Ray Charles sitting on a bench and you're just wondering, just if he gonna, is he going to fall off is that bench? going to fall off that he's bench. Just, yeah, it's, he's wearing like a plaid jacket. Well, Quincy would meet a, a beautiful young woman by the name of Jerry Caldwell, and that marriage would last to the end of time. Yes, it was no. a love story. <laughs> Tale as old as time. <laughs> there's a stat they leave out at the end when they're tallying up his accomplishments. How many times has he been married? At least three. Yeah. But how how many uh, how many times has he laid a lady? Yeah. Laid a lady outside of wedlock. They were all beautiful women. Yeah, every single woman that I saw that he had relations with, I was like, "All right, Quincy." Like, damn, dang. <laughs> Quincy was. Uh, and he admits that he 
He loved the ladies. <laughs> yes. He loved the ladies. Yeah, and all and every woman in his life was like he was he was not faithful ever, yeah. ever. Now, the biggest act going at this time was a guy named Lionel Hampton. And he asked Quincy to join that band. And that was a huge fucking deal. And Quincy is playing horn. They worked every night for 70 nights. And when they worked cities, they'd have to get a white driver to go get food because most places in America were segregated. That was very common back then, having the white drivers take them around. They used to have the little, uh, the green book that was passed around between the black community. It basically was a book that let you know safe places to go, places you shouldn't drive through, that kind of that kind of stuff, just to keep your ass alive. He, he goes back and forth. We go from old Quincy to his story, and he narrates his story. There's also narration from like people who have been dead for a long time. Yeah, they gotta give it up to the editing. Yeah, in this because what they had to dig through, and they made it very compelling and made it very tight yeah and this movie you can see why this movie is a little long runs a little over two hours it could have been like a lot it's a lot of life to cover and yeah like you said they they could have totally done multi-episode sort of thing he goes to europe because he's always going to europe stockholm stockholm sweden Sweden. yeah. yeah he's one of his wives is from sweden he's got kids that are swedish He's accepting, like, awards throughout this movie. A kill, what must it be like? Everywhere you go, people just want to hand you a fucking award. There's... We'll know someday. Yeah, obviously. When we do start doing the podcast circuit and <laughs> people are screaming and girls are fainting. And <laughs> yeah. It's all the, the money, all, all that, the cash. All that documentary group. Oh, doc, yes. doc groupies. So hot. I forgot what I was saying. Sorry. You derailed my train of thought. Sorry, I'm a derailer. No, there's a scene in the movie where you see him on this itinerary just traveling from one city to, I mean, he's all over the world. And like you said, he's at some festival and he's accepting some award or he's introducing a bunch of people somewhere or he's speaking at some symposium. Like it's just, it's nonstop. And he's 80. And he's hanging with like Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea. Yeah. They're cutting it up backstage. He's like inviting them on stages. It's a love fest for Quincy Jones. But literally, as I stated before, 60 plus years of popular American music run through this dude. It's insane, man. He's got his dick everywhere. I didn't realize how many movies he had scored. Yeah. I mean, I knew he had scored movies, but I didn't realize. It started so far back. He discusses his ego and his art. You need confidence, sure. That's I'm not denying that. Yeah. But uh, an ego is usually just a overdressed insecurity. Hmm. I think you have to dream so big that you can't get an ego, because you never fulfill all those dreams. He makes his way in the fifties. To New York City. Bebop was blowing up and Dinah Washington pays Quincy to write for her. She gets some resistance because he's not a big name dude and she's like, uh, he's fucking good. Yeah. This is written by Quincy Jones. If you want the Dinah, you gotta take the Quincy. <laughs> you need the <a> Quincy Delight. <laughs> 
after that, work is flooding in. He's working for people like Sarah Vaughn, Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie. It's uh, insane how quickly all this happens. Insane. I mean, from starting the age of 14, playing in a club, a couple of years later, touring around the country with Lionel Hampton's orchestra, and then a couple of years later, now he's arranging and producing Dinah Washington's record. Blue gardenia Now I'm alone with you And I am also blue And then it's just like bam 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 I mean it's insane yeah what he's accomplished already at this point in his life He uh gets his own band together and he plays in Birdland which is a big deal for him then his mother shows up and she gets walked out and she's making a big scene because she's got troubles. You don't have Quincy Jones without his mother. Something about this woman has kind of defined his drive. That and the fact that his father fucking worked every goddamn day of his life. I was trying, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how much his mother influenced his his career specifically. Obviously, she had, a, I think, a big impact on his relationships with women mm-hmm. over the years. For sure. I think his father had more of an effect on the trajectory of his career. The one thing that you can do to avoid facing your emotions, and Quincy does face this a little later in the movie, that work is the drive. Dive into work. The drive is, that's like a welcome respite, or even restless nights are a respite from someone who you're so close to who's just suffering from madness and can't do this most basic job there's so many deadbeat dads in this world but when you get like a deadbeat mom there's just something something different about that that just warps you in a way and maybe you could go either way with that but uh but quincy quincy i think worked through a lot of feelings rather than face quincy if you're listening we would very much like to pick your brain a little bit more i'm sure you would love to open up to a couple of total strangers absolutely the innermost workings of your mind and how you feel about your mother and the relationship or lack thereof. So if you feel so inclined, please uh, give us a call. Shoot us an email. Documenters podcast at Gmail. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram or Instagram. We're yeah. on the Insta bits. Spotify. You you have a lot of works on Spotify. I'm Spotify. Sure. Yeah. So we're there as well. We share, up, man. We would love to talk to you. We got something in common. We're both on Spotify and I would love to have you sign my uh, penis off. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously after at least one drink. But I, I mean, if you wanted to, Mr. Jones, <laughs> I wouldn't stop you. If you could sign my left testicle, I'm uh, leaving the right testicle. Outside the right For one. Teddy Riley, <laughs> my other favorite producer. New Jack, baby. New Jack Swing. Coming back at you. 2018. Look for it. Apparently his mother, which she's getting walked out of Birdland, was yelling shit like "Make music for God or make music in hell." <laughs> it's we we it sounds funny, but I mean, can you imagine just how traumatizing that was on such an important night for him? Yeah, and then she just shows up out of the blue. I don't want to go too deep into it. I got some mommy issues of my own. Fair enough. Just something about you know, it's not. There's this odd feeling where it doesn't feel good to be separated, but it's somehow is worse when she's there. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. And it just seems like when your emotions are involved, it always seems like the worst possible time. And they they kind of touch on that in the documentary about when she sort of circles in and out of their life 
and I can't remember which one. I think maybe it's Peggy Lipton, maybe uh, yeah. whichever wife it is, talks about how what effect that had on him, how he would just completely change whenever she was around and he was just stressed and nervous. And you're watching this video and she's playing very lovingly with the grandkids. And I'm just picturing him on the other side. Maybe he's the one holding the camera. I don't know. It's just that sort of dichotomy of she looks like a loving grandmother. But then at the same time, you know that there's just all this, a bunch of other shit underneath all of that. I mean, Quincy's career is all about control and and a genius level of adaptation into culture, but he could not control or adapt around his own mother. Yeah. She was his kryptonite. And that's very fascinating to see that. I don't know if we ever would have known anything about that if it wasn't for this movie at all. And I appreciate the fact that you managed to put a comic book reference into this. Yeah. Good on you. You're welcome. Paris, 1957. Paris. He uh, meets with Nani Blanche. Who, uh, I don't know who the fuck that is. It's Nadia Boulanger. Nadia, Nadia Boulanger. Boulanger. Who she taught Stravinsky, Stravinsky and Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein. Who passed away not too long ago. Rest in peace, Leonard Bernstein. West Side Story. And he said that France made him feel free as an artist. That is a common thing amongst uh, black artists during that time period. Black artists f- from America yeah. that go to France... They seem to be treated very well. Yeah. The French, uh, as far as uh, African immigrants that migrate up to France, uh, the French aren't so hot Not at so that. much. Not so much. <laughs> There's just something about the uh, the American black experience that the French really like. Yeah. But they don't want they don't want it directly from that continent. We like our blacks filtered yeah. through uh <laughs> through the West, please. <laughs> Man, I oh mean, black can't. American. What is that accent? What that was, was like, that? Oh black American. <laughs> we feel your pain. Oh black American. <laughs> Are you straight from Africa? Get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> but he has been tapped to do the big show as we said, at the Smithsonian African American Museum. They want him to produce. That's when he starts throwing around those names, second of which is DJ Jazzy Jeff. Again, from anyone else, this would all just sound like name dropping. We get (laughs) it. You know this. But from him, it's like, it's the opposite. They know you. Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Like, he is the name drop for every person he talks about. (laughs) Quincy Jones is the first name Oprah says. When yeah. she's name dropping. Right. Yeah. Well, she's dropping that name and she's got to pick that name up. <laughs> and Colin Powell, and he fucking loves Colin Powell. He yeah, I didn't know they had Colin a bromance. Powell. I didn't know. They're really broing out. Yeah. What is Colin doing right now? Probably shaking his head and his hands all the time, I would imagine. In 1959, he uh, works for a show called Free and Easy. He has a band. It's a big deal to him. And he's. It's uh, his first thing. Like, he has created this Free and Easy show. Like, he's. Sounds like he invested a lot of money and time into it. This is something that he, up to this point, this is him fulfilling a dream. Right. It closes in six weeks. Failure. Uh, Quincy tells the band to tough it out. After six weeks, they go on tour. Brings a whole band on tour. And after 10 months, it all falls apart. Just broke. Stranded in Europe. Not even sure. How, I guess he maybe he wired for money. He wasn't even able to get them home. He was like, we were stranded. What's a boy to do? I don't know. Maybe in 1961, he becomes the first ever black executive at a major record label. Or you could say, go work for the man. Yeah. However you want to put it. Or works for the man. (laughs) Thanks a lot. But he becomes an executive at Mercury Records. You'll find there are a lot of firsts 
on Quincy's resume. <laughs> yeah. Being the first black blah, blah, blah. At first he thinks pop isn't a big deal. Then he realizes it's a lot more work than he thought. But one of the first artists that he sets up and signs, Leslie Gore. It's my party. Y'all know Leslie Gore. It's yeah. my party. I'll cry if I want to. Sunshine lollipops. Sunshine lollipops and rainbows in a droplets. Something, something. Da, 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 da. We're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when you're near the rain clouds just disappear and. I love how you're looking at me like you expect me to kind of pick this up and run with it. <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck you're saying. <laughs> oh, sunshine lollipops in rainbows. That's how it feels in. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that song. Yeah, you yeah, know that okay. one. Oh, I like that song. I mean, it was her. And You Don't Own Me. You Don't Own Me. Oh, yes. I know that A one. classic. Yeah. She had, would come out of the closet later in her life. Really? Yeah. I she, did not know that. Uh, she actually passed away a few years ago. I knew that, but I did not know that she came but out. But she had come out. Yeah. Wow. She, she sang so many songs about trying to attract boys. Well, you know, she really didn't like them. What else was she going to sing about in the 1960s? But Leslie Gore was the big pop sensation. 18 hits with her and Quincy as a teen. And that's him starting out as an executive at Mercury. First foray into pop music. 18 hits with one person. Now, his first wife, Jerry, is like, there's so much infidelity going on. He's always working. And they get divorced. It sounds like they are all still, I guess, somewhat close. The fact that yeah. they they all participated in this. I, it was curious that you didn't actually see them. It was all voiceover for them. I don't yeah. know if you noticed that. Everybody um, seems very, everyone who's been in and out of a relationship with Quincy seems very matter of fact. And it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, I think the people that have been close to him and particularly the women he's been with recognize, which is a, a lot of times you'll notice this with people who are considered to be geniuses or whatever they do. It's just part of the package. You just accept it. Like what they're able to do is so amazing and so above everyone else in their field that people have a, People are more inclined, I think, to excuse stuff and just accept it as this is what it is. Like, yeah. I knew this going in and they all obviously dealt with it for a while. But the fact that they've all been they've the ones that are still alive, I guess, came back and still participated shows that there is, like you said, a, there's a very sort of pragmatic look at the relationship. I mean, they still got kids. You know, the kids are adults. They were married to Quincy Jones. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs> Uh, 1964, a man, maybe you heard of him, Frank Sinatra calls, and he wants Quincy to write, he ends up writing on an album called It Might As Well Be Swing. More than the greatest love the world has known. Talked about how Quincy Jones could change notes around on the spot. Frank would be like, oh, it's a little dense here, Quincy. Quincy would walk over to the table and just, this was something that a lot of people were like, okay, I'll do this overnight. Yeah. I'll come back the next day. Quincy could just change arrangements just right there. Like he was solving like basic long division or something. And, and there's footage you are watching him just like writing. It, it just blows my mind. I mean, again, you're going to hear the word genius tossed around multiple times, I think, in this episode. But it applies. I mean, the man is a genius. Uh, and Frank Sinatra 
had laid total trust at Quincy Jones's feet after that. At that. I mean, Quincy was, I mean, he was still really young at that point. I think he was 22, 23 years old when he started working with Sinatra. Sinatra was twice his age already at that yeah. point. Quincy said that Frank was just his style because they were both giant pussy hounds. Loved to drink, <laughs> loved to party, yeah. loved to make music. Frank said that the musicians would work harder around Quincy than with anyone else. He just inspired people to bring their A game a lot more consistently. And Quincy would impregnate a dancer named Carol. Last name unknown. Uh, they did not say her last name. Her name was Carol. She was a dancer. And she had a daughter named Rachel. Dolezal. Now, Quincy, <laughs> it's a pretty big deal because they would record together, uh, he and Frank, uh, Fly Me to the Moon. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. A seminal Sinatra song, which also would be the first song to be played on the moon. I did not know that. Frank takes Basie's band to Vegas in 64, but Vegas is mob run and racist. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Those things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> but in this instance. <laughs> I'm talking people like Harry Belafonte, Sammy Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne. There was a sign uh, that said, that showed Shecky Green. He was like an old Vegas guy. Yeah, yeah. And here he is right now, ladies and gentlemen. Chicky, Shiky, Shucky, whatever the heck his name is. <laughs> And I ran out and said, thank you, Edie, Idie, Udie. What's your name? Yeah. That uh, was the thing back then. You, but, we could play on the stages. We could bring it. We could pack them in. We could sell out the shows. We could not come in through the front door. Yeah. We could not stay at the hotels. We had to, there was a whole other section down, way down toward the end of the strip, like blocks off of the strip, where all the black performers stayed at these little small, little motel places. That's insane. You're watching Lena Horn. You're like, what a great show, Lena. You can't stay at this hotel. Yeah, she's going to go eat in the kitchen. What the fuck? Yeah. Well, Quincy says something to Frank. Frank makes Vegas not racist anymore. <laughs> hey, Bob, guys. I got a couple of black friends. I know I didn't care before, but now that I'm making money off of a couple of black friends, I was wondering... Could he stay at my hotel? There has been a lot of, over the years, all this lore about Frank Sinatra and, you know, his, what he did to get black artists more respect in Vegas. I'm sure some of it is true. Quincy seems to vouch. Yeah, I mean, Quincy is like straight up just like he was my brother. And I don't dispute that. I mean, I, I don't, I'm assuming that their relationship was, I, I don't know. I just have a hard time believing that Frank Sinatra, he's just, I don't know. It, I'm with you. You know what I mean? I am. I'm with I'm you. I'm having a hard time verbalizing anything right now. Quincy um, was undeniable. His talent and genius was undeniable. Yeah. I think it was Chris Rock who once said that, that baseball wasn't desegregated when Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was so fucking good that you'd have to be a fucking idiot. Exactly. Not to have him on your team. Baseball became more equal when a black man was allowed to be as mediocre as a white man. That's when baseball was equal. And I think this is in this sense. 
Frank, he he's a man who is a musical genius in his own right. He meets a guy like Quincy fucking Jones and his hair gets blown back. He can't let him out of his sight. So he treats Quincy probably better than Sammy in a lot of ways. But I, I will say I, I do know that just because stuff I've read about the Rat Pack and all those guys and Sammy's biography and all that, he never looked at Sammy Davis Jr. as being any different because he was black. He never treated him differently. He was he was Sinatra to everyone, meaning that all those guys that ran with him knew that Sinatra was the head guy. He was the one in charge. And so he would talk shit about you and he would make fun of you. He used to call Sammy, you know, spook and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was all done and sort of like fun that sort of you know me and my guys and it's he's like it's that guy the alpha male who's gonna treat the other ones around like shit from time to time but they're willing to take it because but sammy's insults are because of the color of his skin (laughs) well he's not calling dean martin a spook well i mean in the same way you know the way he treated joey bishop joey bishop was jewish yeah you know peter lawford they have their own things going on for various other reasons it's ridiculous that i know yeah even Everyone's just, iota about all this stuff, but everyone's just ripping off Don Rickles back then, anyway. <laughs> and Don Rickles, I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> the episode of The Tonight Show where Frank Sinatra's on there, and I can't remember if this is when he is announcing his retirement or coming back from his retirement. I think it's announcing his retirement, and you know him and Johnny were buddies; they were thick as thieves. Yeah. So it's like this is rotating roster of people from Frank's life coming out. Don Rickles comes out, does his old Don Rickles stick. And then just like, just breaks down like, let me tell you something. This man right here, best human being I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, just like they worship the ground that Frank walks on. It's, yeah. it's hilarious to watch because it's, it's I think it's 70s is when all of this happened. And it's just, it's just this weird little, it's almost like he's the the godfather. It is and all a, these other guys are coming out, sucking his dick. Well, he, Frank did have that weight. He managed to be like everybody's friend that mattered. He would get the respect of people who controlled shit. Yeah. And so Frank, um, talk and I about, like Frank Sinatra. I mean, I'm not talking shit about Frank. He's Sinatra. a great singer. Yeah. I'm not saying I spin his shit all the time, but he's no. a, he is a good singer. I'm really more of a Tony Bennett person. I love Tony Bennett Sinatra. too. Honestly, I would pick Tony Bennett over yeah. Frank. Fly me to the moon. And let me play among the stars. Anyway, Frank cured racism. There's never been a racist act in Las Vegas since. Nope. Quincy said, I love him, man. Talking about Frank. And they never had a contract, just a handshake. It was who else did he also have the handshake with? It was Sinatra. Ray, Ray yeah, Charles. Ray Charles. Old school, baby. Old school. Henry Mancini taps Quincy for a movie. This is when Quincy starts getting in to writing scores. Quincy, in an interview, he talks about how music is sociological. He's on stage in Sweden. There's this interviewer that's there, or a camera guy is taking his picture, and I thought, Quincy could fuck that camera guy if he wanted to. <laughs> I don't think it has sexuality. It has anything to do with it. The way everyone is just in reverence of Quincy Jones. If I was around Quincy Jones... And Quincy was like, let me get some of that ass. I'd be like, okay, Mr. Jones, no problem. Just write a song about it. Make me a hit, Q. But now we go to 1966, L.A. We need to fucking burn through this shit. It's 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 crazy to me 
that is, is Henry Mancini even still alive? I don't think he is. I, they, I don't think they so. got an audio clip with him, and he talks about how the studios asked, "Can can a black person do movie scores like music <laughs> with strings?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, but that but that was the the thought back then yeah. was that black people didn't do strings like it was purely jazz, big band sort of stuff." But we weren't capable of where that's because strings were deemed to be more sophisticated uh, and we were not deemed to be sophisticated. So therefore, we didn't people didn't think that we would be able to create music for an orchestra. Now, Quincy, he experiences a little bit of struggle. He discusses about how he's desperate to escape down into the subconscious. That's where all the goodies come from. But when he finally tapped that well... He was making score after score after score. He would also meet Ula Anderson as his second wife. And he would have two kids with her. I think uh, Martina and Quincy Delight the third, QD3. And he does scores by uh, films like The Pawn Broker. Ironside. In the Heat of the Night. Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. To serve with love. The getaway. All over the fucking The Italian place. job. spending all his time doing this quincy is a man that works constantly just like his dad and you know what happens when you spend all your time at work the wife goes to sweden says i'm just gonna go stay for a little bit and then calls and says i took the kids we're not coming home that old we're going to visit family trick but we cut to qd3 quincy delight the third in stockholm and he's interviewing his dad in present day, or close to it. You notice he didn't say anything about making any attempt to get his kids back. No. <laughs> I mean, he was very sad and upset about it. Look. But from what I could tell, he just seemed to be like, okay. I think the reality of it is that up until maybe 87 or 88, Quincy just wasn't a very good dad. No. I mean, he admits that. He says that he wasn't. He always loved his kids. Yeah. But he wasn't always a great father. And I mean, you got to think about it. For the guy, for someone like him, who's doing as much as he's doing. I mean, that's that's kind of an easy way, not easy, but a convenient way to remove those distractions from your life. She's taking them away. I'm hurt. It's horrible. Okay, I'm going to get back to work. Now. Yeah, that work, it overcomes that those emotions you can't control. Yeah. Those emotions you don't want to feel. It's all about mama, man. It's all about mama. But in this interview, Quincy states that he and Ray Charles, I like this quote. They said that not one drop of my self-worth depends on your acceptance of me. In this world of social media desperation, that's that's an important quote to throw around. Yeah, I mean, that's that. I mean, you had to have that when they were coming up. You were going to constantly be getting hit with people looking at you and having perceptions about you in their world because there weren't a lot of them in that world and these are masters of their craft yeah. giant stars that are segregated until frank came along at least in vegas yeah vegas where they could stay wherever they want frank should have just went everywhere with them he did the sanford and son theme 
Yeah, you didn't know that? No. Yeah. But it makes sense. Yeah. Quincy didn't do the Seinfeld theme, but he could if he wanted to. Today, Quincy tours the world with young musicians. So I've got this list here. Yeah. This is in this this Quincy's World Tour. Yeah. He's fucking, at this point, like 82 years old. Yeah. Uh, First stop, Republic of Georgia. Kamaru Juba. And we're not talking about the state Georgia. No. (laughs) We're talking about fucking Georgia. Then back to uh, New York. Hey, I'm walking here. For an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Some point from next place to the next place, he runs into Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yeah. Don't know where he is when that happens. Who are shit-eating, grinning when they're around him. Next stop, London. Hello, mate. Then off to Stockholm. Hey. To talk to the CEO of Spotify. Yeah. Because that's just what you do when you're in Stockholm. Yeah. Spotify, where you can listen to the documentary. (laughs) Montreux, Switzerland. Salut. I don't know why I was there, but he was there. Hanging. Hanging, doing his thing, eating Swiss cheese, looking at the Alps. Then he's off to Hong Kong for the Asian Music Awards. Because when I think Asian music, I think Quincy Jones. They really respect his composition ability. Then off to Dubai for the opening of Q's Bar and Lounge. Oh, okay. uh, Which sounds like a really swanky place. And hopefully there'll be one coming to Music City at some point in the future. That would be nice. Oh, really? I mean, no, I, I don't know, but I'm just saying that would be nice if we had something like that. Quincy, here. come hang out, please, man. It's he's been in that. He's cut records in that. Yeah, before. totally. Q, hook us up, man. Uh, and then off to Havana, Cuba. Hola. Barack was like, "It's cool for us to go," and Q was like, "All right, I'm going." I like it when a car pulls up. Yeah. And because there's a a vibrant classic car culture in uh, Cuba. Because they don't they didn't have any choice. Yeah, they have an embargo. <laughs> a lot of people will uh, cite. Cuba has one of the most efficient organic farming systems. And a lot of people will cite that as like, we should bring that here. But Cuba only has it like that because they had no other choice. (laughs) They had to be good at it or starve to death. And trust me, nobody in Cuba wants the cars that they drive. (laughs) No, they... They want a Toyota. They want a Honda. They'll take a Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they have to just keep working on that shit to keep it going. Yeah. Those, nonstop. Those cars are pretty they are dope, beautiful. Though. And you know there's a shit ton of collectors that wants those borders opened up. Yeah. The, the real classic car culture yeah. down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so then from Havana to L.A. Bank. Uh, so this is this. I don't know how much time passed with this, but just from the way it was edited, it looked like a whirlwind world tour. Yeah. Um, and then he proceeds to do what? He goes on stage, and then he, he starts to speak, and then he's like, I'm trying not to fall. He has to call to his assistant. He almost collapses on stage. I got really nervous watching that scene. That was unsettling. Yeah, I could imagine that would be so scary for the audience to watch, yeah. too. Like, oh, my God, is Quincy Jones going to fucking die on right. stage right now? He goes to the hospital. He has blood clots. And Rashida's like... Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you not drinking? She's very concerned about her father. I love that she has, it seems to be a lot of times that seems to be the thing with families with a lot lot of kids where the youngest sort of turns into kind of the caretaker. I think they just, there's a different relationship that the youngest, particularly when you've got kids like his that range from, I mean, I've, I've got to imagine there's a good 25 
30 year age gap between Rashida and the oldest. Yes. He's been having kids going back Mm -hmm. a long time that there's this relationship that the youngest, when you're that young that you have with your dad, that's different than everyone else. Almost like he treats you like a granddaughter. Yeah. Almost. I've seen that dynamic play out in, in elements within my own family. Like the youngest kind of stepping up to handle yeah. some problems. It's and, good that she looked out for him. In L.A., 1972, he meets Peggy Lipton from the Mod Squad, and they connect instantly. Fast love. He's got a type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like blonde-looking white women. Yeah, thin blonde, long hair. Their child, Kadeda, is born. and uh, But Peggy, uh, he she understands the arrangement. She focuses on the kids while Quincy... Works hard. Quincy said that Duke Ellington passed the baton to him to eliminate categorization in music. They wanted to bridge the gaps and separate genres. And I'd say Quincy throughout compositions and scores. I mean, he's classically trained, proficient jazz musician, would later embrace hip hop later in his career. Pop master, a a literal master of pop music. First African-American nominee for best song at the Academy Awards. But... In the 70s, he collapses. He has a fucking brain aneurysm. When they're in his head doing surgery, they find another aneurysm on the other side of his brain. They didn't really, weren't too worried about getting married, but after that, Quincy and Peggy decided to get married because it seemed like life was suddenly a little shorter. But the doc says, Quincy, you cannot play trumpet anymore because I guess that's not good for... I would imagine the pressure... Yeah. Of blowing. There's a part where he's being interviewed during this time about his medical problems. And he says, it's interesting when you're, when your back's against the wall like this, how people close to you begin to disappear. I mean, if you stopped at like 1962, he, he would have had oh, more of a career. Yeah. Yeah. Then he would have already have accomplished shit that people only dream of just up to that point. And he's just a guy who's just so undeniable. And when he gets to a position where he has to take a break from it, there he does find that disillusion, realizes who's sincere and who isn't in his life. And that must be, at least for the first time since his childhood, probably one of the early times when he's starting to kind of reevaluate his direction. Yeah, because he's pretty much up to that point. He's just been go, go, go. Go, go, go. Nonstop, one thing after another, living that lifestyle. I don't know that he necessarily stopped living the lifestyle. I think maybe for a short period of time, it seems like he got really health conscious, started doing yoga. Yeah. He was looking pretty tight, man. He was like yeah. taking care of himself and, you know, looking really healthy. But I mean, obviously at some point that starts to sort of fall off a little bit. And and he's still coming to... because Rashida Jones yeah. is born. Yeah. Thank ba- you. Baby Rashida. We see awkward teenage Rashida Jones at some point, and that's that's always fun to yeah. see. There's a part where current Quincy is looking at old pay sheets that of money that he made for arrangements, and they're ranging from like 12 to 22 bucks. I love that scene. It's really cool. He's like, I was just happy to eat. I wasn't starving. He's looking at an old scrapbook, and he finds notes from his mother, like lecturing notes. Yeah, it looks like it's some old clippings of interviews he did in magazines, and then she has attached typed notes criticizing yeah, comments and what stuff he's that doing. he made in the interview. She's always like, you're going to hell, you shouldn't do this. Which is a twisted version of what mothers do. My grandmother used to always, she would just, I would get newspaper clippings in the mail from her of yeah. stories that she thought that I would be interested in. <laughs> this is taking that 
and just twisting it and subverting <laughs> it into the worst thing. He's got this article in, you know, the cover story of Ebony magazine. Yeah. Which uh, any normal mother would be very proud of. And she sends it with a list of all the bad things and all the evil stuff that he saw. <laughs> it's like, geez. Yeah. Like, that's everyone is kissing Quincy's ass, but his own mom. Yeah. Yeah. Like how fucked up is that? And it seems like he's, I don't know if he's forgotten about this stuff, but as he's going through this box, as he's looking through that stuff, it, it almost seems like it's his first time seeing it. Yeah. Like he didn't seem to really know what it was. He kind of had to pause to analyze who yeah. wrote it. And then he was like, no, that's my mother. Yeah. My mother wrote that. That's fucked up. And we hear, I believe his mother's name is said for the first time. No, they actually said it at the beginning. Oh, I yeah. guess I missed it. But we see uh, old camera footage of Sarah, that's Quincy's mother, with the grandkids, little Rashida and Kadita. She looks really kind of weird and creepy in that scene. I feel bad for saying that because she's an old lady. Yeah, she's but, old. But she just looks crazy. That's not politically correct, I know, to call <laughs> people crazy. She looks mentally... Incom... Fucking nuts. <laughs> she looks fucking mental. She looks fucked. <laughs> I thought at some point she might eat one of the children. Yeah. Quincy said that he would go into a cold sweat around his mother, and he admitted out loud that... This probably was a factor in a lot of his failing relationships. Quincy's in the studio with the young musicians. There's this dude he's with. He's got a really nice voice. Yeah. He's great, man. That was really nice. Quincy describes the 70s as the most exciting period in his career. He does work on The Wiz. Was The Wiz a hit? So here's the thing about The Wiz. <laughs> uh, I can't remember who directed it. It was uh, Sydney. Uh, shit. Sydney Lumet. Or, um, everyone was expecting it to be this huge hit. Quincy Jones did the soundtrack. Uh, it was a Motown. It's a movie that Barry Gordy put out um, really worked really hard put a lot of money into it Sydney Lumet yeah Sydney Lumet um he was at the time he was boning Diana Ross so she got the lead as Dorothy Nipsey Russell as the Tin Man I can't remember the name of that actor uh, who played the lion um you would see him on a lot of 70s stuff back in the day the Jeffersons all in the family that kind of stuff and Michael Jackson obviously as a scarecrow the movie did not do well but black people were really excited about that movie and black people still love that movie. It's one of those movies that it's kind of like it's like Harlem Nights. There are so many movies out there that were specifically targeted towards or either were latched on to by a minority group and they love it. And it's a huge thing within that community. Mm -hmm. But outside of it, most people don't even think that much about it. Most people consider this movie. It was a box office disappointment. It was a shit ton of money put into it. It's a weird movie. If you've never seen it. You should check it out. I, I, I think I've seen it when I, since I was a kid, but not since. It's long. It's too long. There are some scenes in it that gave me nightmares when I was a kid. But Michael the, Jackson looks fucking creepy. But the soundtrack is fucking killer. Quincy Jones 
the scene when they get to the Emerald City. That's all I got to say. That did, scene alone. Do you know who did the screenplay? I'll give you a hint. John Peters. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, those who listen to a Death of Superman Lives episode might remember John Peters. Uh, he is the best Batman director. That's my hint. He's the best The best Batman, Batman director? Yeah. Tim Burton? No. <laughs> By best, I mean worst. Oh. Joel, Joel Schumacher. Schumacher. <laughs> Joel fucking Schumacher wrote The Wiz. Well, that makes sense then. <laughs> <laughs> the visuals of the movie are it's all taking place in New York. So Oz has been replaced by this twisted version of New York City. It's the 70s. Anyone who remembers what the 70s, what, the, what New York looked like in the 70s, burned out buildings, all that kind of shit. So it's like, it's got that sort of aesthetic to it. Roller skating. There's roller skating. There's roller skating. Um, there's subway scenes that still to Did this Jared day Fogel terrify me. Uh, not that I can remember. Okay. But again, the soundtrack is, that's what it's all about for that movie. Cool. It's all about the soundtrack. Well, on The Wiz, Quincy meets Michael Jackson. He talks about how professional this kid is. He absorbed everything, would show up hours early to get into makeup. Was not one that uh, complained very much. He was very pro. One of the things about Michael that I've heard numerous people say is that when he comes into a situation, particularly during this time where he's got this vision, he's forming this vision of what he wants to be, where he wants to go as far as his career, his music is concerned. He was just a sponge. He just absorbed every single thing, whether it was the camera stuff in the studio, learning how to use the sound, but like he was doing this stuff from a very early age. He always just wanted to soak that information up. That's one of those things that his dad would hit him if he didn't do this. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> you heard have you heard the we don't mean to laugh at that. It's just it's very known that Joe Jackson's a monster. Didn't he just die recently? He yeah. died like earlier this year. Did you hear have you heard this rumor that since Joe Jackson died, their old doctor came out and stated that that Michael had been through medication essentially been chemically castrated when he started to go through puberty direction of Joe Jackson. Bullshit. Seriously? It's a rumor. And I mean, Michael's gone and Joe's gone. And I don't know if any of the other Jacksons can verify this or are willing to. It's been on the rumor mill for a while, but now it's gotten a little more traction since we've lost both of them. That Mike, but doesn't it kind of make sense? I mean, that family, nothing would surprise me at this point. Yeah. Just leave Janet alone. Janet's the only one where I'm, I, I'm like, it's, it's that's my boo. It's In my, my brain, I'm like, just let Janet run everything. But I don't know. She could be nuts too. But but it just I, seems like. Actually, the one that's not nuts is Reby. Reby. Exactly. Reby Jackson is the one who got out of that family. As soon as the opportunity presented itself, she got married and she moved away. She had a song, she had an album. You might remember Centipede. No. In the quiet of the night is when the snakes and the crawling and the moon starts to glow and disappear. When the time is 
she's the oldest daughter, and she got up out of that house uh, very early in her life. Quincy knows what he sees of Michael, and Michael is a smart got a smart brain for this business. So they link together quite fluidly, and they put out what became the biggest record by a black artist ever at that time. Such a good record. It's so good. Off the wall. You know, I was I was wondering, you know, if, if she could keep on because the force has got a lot of power and it, it makes me feel like a, it, it makes me feel like a... Uh. I mean, it's one of those albums you just don't skip. You don't no. skip a song. You just listen to it from beginning to end. Yeah. It's perfectly, even the order of the tracks is. It is just fucking huge. Oh! <laughs> and Quincy. Shamona! <laughs> Quincy has become a, a father figure to Michael. <laughs> Which, if you can't be one to your own kids, I mean, why not to the biggest pop star in the world? True that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but do it. I just can't help but do it. Ooh. Oh! Oh! Yeah. Well, they reunited for Thriller, and if my and Quincy said that if Michael liked a beat or a song, he'd call it. I like that smelly jelly. That's some smelly jelly right there. Don't the bear. I love the interviewing of uh, Michael Jackson in his zombie makeup as like casual zombie Michael. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Quincy is the beastie. <laughs> I call him QD. Quincy Delight. <laughs> he listened to 600 songs for them to drill down to the songs they were going to use ultimately on the Thriller album. How many, I mean, were there, were they like a lot of instrumentals or like rhythm songs? I don't know if they were just... 600? I mean, they, they said listened, not like wrote or composed, listened to 600 tracks. And they cut that album pretty quickly. I mean, based on what he said, it was really fast paced once they got in the studio. The Girl Is Mine could only have been because Paul McCartney was How, there. I'm like, you couldn't have found one more yeah. out of the 600 to replace that track? Seriously? <laughs> the doggone girl is mine. I don't believe it. The girl is mine. Mine, mine. And she's mine. Mine, mine. It's such a bad song. Well, Thriller, fucking gigantic. <laughs> fucking gigantic. It did okay. <laughs> yeah, it made a few bucks. Michael Jackson is fucking huge. Quincy That's a whole different documentary. Right there. <laughs> yeah, there could be a four-hour documentary just about the making of Thriller. There, for those of you who are not really young enough, who are not old enough to remember, I can't, I can't even convey to them the power of Michael Jackson in the '80s, '82 on. I mean, it was just insane. Never seen anything like it. Probably would never see anything like it again in my lifetime. That's all I got to say about that. Woo! Learn, your, learn your history. Don't mean, don't, don't. Come on. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
when this happens. Quincy and Michael win a Grammy. Quincy thanks his wife for sacrificing her life. L.A. 1984. We see past yoga. It contrasts with current Quincy yoga. He still does some yoga. It's more of a necessity now. Yeah. But Quincy opens up a production company called Quest with a Q. Well, Quest is spelled with a Q, but this is spelled <laughs> Q-W-E-S-T, production. He does a uh, another list of celebrities because he wants to get together and do a little song called We Are the World. And he gets Sidney Poitier, Barbara Streisand, the Micro Machines guy, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder. Was the Micro Machines guy in there? Yeah, he was. Really? Yeah, he was a big 80s singer. <laughs> I don't remember that. I remember seeing him in that video. I'm pretty sure the Micro Machines guy was in the We Are the World I video. think the song's a little bit too slow for him to have had any part. He also goes on to do the score for The Color Purple, hanging out with Spielberg. Let's get the whitest dude to direct that movie, too. If memory serves, I, I don't know it's, that Alice Walker, the, the writer of The Color Purple, was happy with Steven Spielberg. Yes. Yeah. It's like getting adaptation. Joel Schumacher to write The Wiz. Ouch. Ooh. Ooh. Actually, Low blow, man. Spielberg was still good at this time. He wasn't <laughs> derivative baloney at this I didn't point. know for years that Steven Spielberg directed The Color Purple. Like, yeah. I grew up watching that movie. Every black person my age, every black person grew up watching The Color Purple regardless of what your age is. We could all make quotes from the movie. Yeah. Didn't realize Steven Spielberg directed it probably until I was like What's your favorite 17 quote? or 18. Oh, uh, so many. I like it when that kid's like, um, it's gonna rain on your head. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> that was a big hit in our household. <laughs> <laughs> That is one of the best. Next time, I put a little sugar Avery P in his. And when she like that. threatens to slit Danny Glover's throat. Oh, yeah. Mm, classic. So you do right by me. Everything you think about going to crumble. Purple. You told Hoppo to beat me. <laughs> All my life, I had to fight. I had to fight my brothers. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. So a woman ain't safe in her own house. But I never thought I'd have to fight in my own house. I kind of paraphrase that. Yeah. You keep on telling Harpo like you do, but I kill him dead before <laughs> I let him put his hands on me. Paraphrasing a lot, but you get the gist. Yeah. It's Color purple. Movie. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this episode is just... We are off the rails. It's impossible to do a short episode with us, man. I'm so sorry you have to edit these all the time. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. After the color purple, he, he was burnt out. There was nothing left, and the marriage got bleak. He and Peggy broke up after a 14-year marriage. Yeah, it seemed like that movie just... Not that he was just drained at that point. He had a nervous breakdown. We see a teenage Rashida and Kadita. They're missing their daddy. But they're used to him not being around. But then we see Leisure Quincy. He comes out of this and it seems like he's becoming more engaged with his kids. Sorry to the older kids. You're all grown now. Yeah. Sorry you missed the boat. Yeah, sorry about that. But the younger kids, 
which would explain why him and Rashida are so close. Yeah. Because that coincides with that time. They talk about how uh, Quincy Delight 3, QD3, introduced his dad to hip hop. Kendrick Lamar also appears in this movie. Kendrick, where do you think rap came from? Loaded question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kendrick's like, it's from the Bronx. <laughs> I'm really good at impressions. <laughs> that is the best Kendrick Lamar I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> hey, Quincy. That is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, audience. We have a very forgiving audience. He is not allowed to do accents <laughs> anymore. I thought about doing some bars, but that just would have gotten worse. But he says, no, rest from Africa, praise shouters. That's right, learn your history. He visits his childhood home in Chicago, and this is around in the 80s. That's a heavy scene. And he's very affected, and he realizes how much he carries around the past. But he comes to terms and he comes to this realization that his mother was just fucking mentally ill. She couldn't really help it. And while it hurt that she couldn't be there and it hurt that he couldn't deal with her, he understood that she did the absolute best that she could do. Yeah, and I feel like that's at a certain point, everyone sort of comes to that conclusion. Even if you have, <clears throat> for those of us who, if you had a great relationship with both your parents and you're all together in this great nuclear family and it was just beautiful, then more power to you. But most people don't have yeah. those kind of families, those kind of relationships with their parents. At a certain point when you're an adult, some sooner than others, you sort of come to this realization that, you know, all that shit you've been carrying around, parents are just making it up as they go along. They don't fucking know what they're doing. Like they're just, they're doing the best they can. They fuck up and don't realize that, Something they've done isn't even a blip on the radar for them. May have had a huge effect on you. You've held on to it for your entire life. And it just is what it is. Like I said, it it took him a really long time to get to that place. Granted, he had to deal with way, way more complicated stuff than a lot of other people. Because mental illness is a heavy thing you yeah. have to deal with when you're a kid. Especially during that time period. Yeah. Where mental illness was not looked at as, as in the same way that it is now. Chicago, Southside Chicago, 30, 40s. No one yeah. sitting around and be like, let's all discuss our feelings. Right. Take, put that bitch in a straitjacket and lock her up in a padded room in some asylum somewhere, which I'm where I'm sure she got the best of care. Yeah. <laughs> well, it said that she would periodically escape. It showed that they, they probably didn't give two fucks to even lock the door. It was basically like Arkham. It's essentially yeah. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> he was Batman. Yeah. His mother was an Arkham all the time. She was the Joker, and she just kept getting out over and over again. And we have done another comic reference. Yeah. You're welcome. Check that off the list. In 1989, he starts gathering folks up. Miles Davis, who's still alive at that time. Yeah. Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Dizzy Gillespie, Ray Charles, and Big Daddy K. I remember this shit. Ice-T. You know, I see who did the band Body Count. That was his heavy metal band. That first album, which got him in real trouble with the police, they didn't like it. But there's a song on there called KKK Bitch. That song might be the best 90s punk song. Said I love you, but my daddy don't play. Grand Wizard of the KKK. Ah, ah, ah. 
a dear old dad. To me, it's a punk song, and I think it's one of the best punk songs in the 90s. Check that out. That's off the first body count record. Highly recommended. But yes, Ice-T is there, and they converge. They all come together. I wore this album out back in the day. I still have this on vinyl. And this record is... Back on the Block. Mountain 1989. Classic jazz and swing acts combined with modern hip hop and rap. And he was by no means the first person to do this. Don't flip the script. He wasn't the innovator in this. My script is flat <laughs> on the table. <laughs> but it was a big deal at the time because Quincy, deal, Quincy Jones was a big deal from a much older generation, though he has managed to stay relevant over the decades. This was probably the first rap album that my mom listened to. And probably the first album with rap that a lot of moms listen to. This is Quincy Jones. You can't not, if you're like in your, I don't know, 40s, you can't not get a Quincy Jones album that's got Ella Fitzgerald, Shaka Khan, Ray Charles, just a ton of people. You don't know who this Ice, this Ice T person is, or this Big Daddy Kane person is, a Kumo D, but it's Quincy Jones. One of the things I noticed in the documentary when we were recording it, I feel like he mentioned to them, to one of them, to enunciate, to make sure they were enunciating the words, which was a big deal because one of the most common complaints from parents back in the day was, I can't understand what they're saying. It's a bunch of jibber-jabber. That's what my mom always used to say. It's a bunch of jibber-jabber. Quincy's like, your grandmama's going to hear exactly. this. And, and exactly. And you can hear it on that album. They, they all sound very different on that album than they had on their own stuff. An everlasting omnipresence is my present state of being, seeing the unpleasant sight of righteous souls live like peasants. The mind stunts growth in adolescence. I remember that shit. <laughs> and this is around when Ice-T's forming a band Body Count yeah. with songs like Cop Killer. I love that he went on to play a cop <laughs> for like so many years. <laughs> Quest Productions also took a little rapping boy by the name of The Fresh Prince and gave him his show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where Quincy appeared on with Little Richard on an episode. Shut up. <laughs> I just watched an episode of Blossom last night with Little Richard. Man, he got around in he the did. 90s. He made the rounds. He's still alive, right? He lives in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. I saw him at Walgreens. No, you didn't. On his birthday. No. I was at the Walgreens over on West End. I ran in for something, and I just heard on the radio that today was Little Richard's birthday. And then I come out of Walgreens, and there he is and this freaking Cadillac. And he's got, like, the glasses on. Like he just had his pupils dilated or some shit yeah, like that. Yeah, the classic old man glasses. And I saw him and I was like, happy birthday. And he just kind of waved. And he goes, oh, shut up. No. <laughs> he knows he can come out now, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, never mind. <laughs> Quincy also vowed. If you've never heard Little Richard's version of I Feel Pretty from West Side Story, <laughs> you should definitely check it out. He also founded Vibe Magazine, very influential magazine. Yeah. He also recognized the East Coast, West Coast problems in the early 90s, and he attempted to solve them. And he put together a symposium. In light of looking back at that era and all that's happened, the idea of putting Suge Knight in a room to <laughs> broker peace is just so maybe comical. Not, maybe not the best 
Uh, <laughs> the best person to choose. <laughs> I mean, the man was involved. Yes. Oh, he was involved. <laughs> and But he gets really emotional at this symposium. We no longer can afford to be non-political. And I'm talking to the hip-hop nation now. We got to seriously talk about what you are going to deal with. They are not playing. There's real bullets out there, believe me. I'm not going to roll on here. I got so many things to say. And it's a very emotional thing for me. I want to see you guys live at least to my age. I really do. We're talking, we're, we're talking at the time of, you know, the whole shit between Death Row and Bad Boy. Yeah. And fucking Biggie dying and Tupac dying. I mean, it was a it was a big deal. Like this was not something if you were actually living through all that, it was insane to watch these guys just getting gunned down in the yeah. streets. Like you're selling millions of records, yet you're still in this lifestyle. And, well, a lot of this was idiotic posturing i mean a lot of these men were like yeah. poets at yeah. their own heart but a lot of them felt like they had to play up this persona i feel like biggie had had more legitimate street cred he was actually out on the corners i mean he was hustling he was he was selling slinging drugs uh, yeah and tupac had a hard background as oh yeah well. yeah but he definitely was kind of more of the writer type yeah i mean his mom was a black panther i mean he was not an idiot i mean tupac was a very smart cat but he just was a smart cat who didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Yeah. And having Suge Knight egging him on. And Suge Knight didn't know that life either. I mean, Suge Knight came from an upper middle class black family, played like, played football in high school. Yeah. But he was... He was what, posturing like he was this gangster guy, but he really didn't understand that world. Suge kind of was gangster. Like, he did mm. embody it. I mean, that dude was fucking... He, he, he had a natural affinity he, he towards that lifestyle. He created the persona, but he didn't come from that. No. And his... But that's kind of the irony of it. And his inability to really understand it because he didn't come from it, I think is what really led to the shit turning out the way it did. Because if he really knew the game, he would understand the rules of the game. Yeah. And things wouldn't have gotten us out of control. That's my opinion on the whole thing. I don't know. I mean... He hung vanilla ice out of window. I mean, mean, Shug was fucking hard. Yeah. He was hard. He's a scary looking motherfucker. He is scary. (laughs) He's still locked up. I think he got charged again for yeah, something. Yeah, he got out and then he got yeah, he got tossed back in. Yeah. Again. But he's at this symposium. I wonder what's going through Suge's head. Uh, Probably the one person in that crowd is watching Quincy Jones and be like, shut the fuck, fuck up, up, old fuck man. You, fuck you, Quincy. Do you, did, you, did you ever watch the Source Awards? Did you <laughs> watch that on the Source? you remember that whole thing? Uh, where he's he like. up on stage. Yeah, he's like, if you don't want your producers to be videos, in the videos. All of Right, yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh. Like know, they thought the fights were going to break out that night. I mean, in Suge's, to take Suge's side very briefly, Puff Daddy does suck. Yeah. He sucks. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you were a fine producer, Diddy, but when you were like, after your friend was gone, who was the real talent that I everyone loved, that shit sucked, dude. And it still <laughs> sucks. Everyone was just being nice to you because everyone loved Biggie. But let's face it, I don't know why everyone <laughs> pretends he's good. He's not. And he wasn't even. He wasn't even sampling. He was taking entire <laughs> songs. Like I mean, Big Papa, great song, but that entire song is in the sheets by Ron Isley. The entire song. I'll be missing you. That is the police. Like the entire song is the police. What's the song he did with? Um. Oh, what's his name? Uh. Shit. Is it Mace? Where they're sampling. Harlem World. No, no, where they're sampling I'm Coming Out 
by Diana Ross. Yeah, that sounds. I think that is like a mace. Song. Is that mace? Like that? Is, I mean, that's not a sample. You have taken the entire yeah, song. Yeah. That's, that's basically what he did. That was his bread and butter. Oh God! Remember the song he did for the Godzilla soundtrack? That was wasn't that the uh, the like the cashmere? The yes. Oh my God! <laughs> it's the fucking worst. Uh, he's the reason I was like, I think I'm not going to listen to Led Zeppelin for like 20 more years. <laughs> Uh, well, he uh, he impregnates uh, Natasha Kinsky, <laughs> and uh, they have a daughter, Kenya Kinsky. So there's one more in the I back. thought that Rashida was the youngest. Nope, she's Man, the second from the youngest. That dude is potent. He also uh, performs at the inauguration of a one, William Jefferson Clinton. <laughs> What's up? For those of y'all who missed that impression the last go-round, he's... <laughs> Being kind enough to do it again for you, and then Nelson Mandela uh, speaks in this. You gonna? I thought you were gonna maybe do a Nelson. Mandela no, I'm not impression. gonna do that. I'm not. <laughs> we get humanitarian Quincy. Yeah, Quincy who's trying to be actively inspiring, trying to like feed the hungry. But we are the world, Quincy. He wants to do the We Are the Future concert, and he does. He's trying to make some positive changes. He loves saying motherfucker. Motherfucker. He loves saying motherfucker. I love the fact that he cursed so much in this documentary. <laughs> Shit. Mess with that motherfucker, boy. Because initially I was worried at the beginning, because it starts off with him in the interview with Dr. Dre. And Dr. Dre, at a certain point, is just completely blown away by the fact that he's sitting here talking to Quincy Jones. And he's like, this is fucking insane, man. Motherfucker. And I was like, oh, shit. He just spoke like that in front of... And then you very quickly (laughs) realized, this motherfucker grew up in the south side of Chicago. Grew up playing music and clubs like his vocabulary... Motherfucker, shit. It's not as squeaky clean as you would probably think that it would be. And one of the most touching scenes, and it's in the early 2000s, he's sitting by Luciano Pavarotti and the Bushes, but he's watching Ray Charles. This is not long before Ray Charles would pass away, but he's singing My Buddy to Quincy. My buddy. My buddy. Then we cut to Obama giving a speech outside the African American History Museum. And more Quincy dropping Colin Powell's name. We didn't get Colin Powell yet, huh? Because he's got to make sure Colin shows up. We didn't get Colin Powell? At this award. Okay, I'll call Colin, man. I'll call him. He just gives him a call. My brother Colin, this is Quincy, man. Uh, Colin Powell, we got him. Oh, and Quincy outside the museum hollers at fans because the TSU band. I love that scene so much. Promotes. Talks about how awesome the band is. Yeah, he says, Tennessee State University, great band. TSU, shout out. TSU. We see more celebrities. Michael Richardson. Michael Richards, rather. (laughs) Wait, Kramer? (laughs) He did a stand-up set and didn't work out too well. But there is a lot of people there. You got Sam Jackson, Barack, and Michelle, Chuck D, Mary J. Blige, Oprah, 
And the biggest, hottest get when you're opening uh, an African-American history museum, Tom Hanks. There are six surviving Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. I would not have guessed that there was that many left. Black don't crack. Shit. Who messed with that motherfucker, boy? I think Jalil White is there, too. I can't remember. I think he's in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jalil's Yeah, there. he likes to kind of stay. He doesn't like the spotlight, so... And uh, John Lee Malvo. You know who that is, right? I have no idea who that is. It's the DC sniper. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Bobby. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we, <laughs> we get some stats. Over 2,900 songs. Over 300 albums. 51 film and TV scores, over a hundred, over a thousand original scores, 79 award nominations, 27 wins. The biggest record still to this day is Thriller. And will that will continue to be the case till the end of time. I, it, the state of the music industry, if the trend continues the way it's going, like there will, that will never be recreated ever. I mean, that, that album not, has literally sold. Not if Nicki Minaj has anything <laughs> to say about it. Let's check much, the charts. Oh, Nicki, I'm so sorry. How much is Thriller sold at this point? I would wager to say it's probably like 60-something million. Probably more than that. Because it, it continues to sell. Yeah. It, it's just one of those albums that's going to always be sold. Also, We Are the World, the biggest single. Which makes sense. I think everyone made each other buy that. Like When I was in the third grade, for a period of time, we started every day. All the classes would go into the little center area, which was it was an auditorium because the school was round. And so the classes were on the perimeter of the circle in the library. And a lot of stuff was in the middle. There was a little common area. And we would, all the classes would come out and we would sing. We had to sing We Are the World every morning the beginning of school. It's pledge, wow. of, pledge of Allegiance. Every morning. Every morning. We sang it so much that me and my best friend at the time, David Latimer, shout out to David Latimer. What up, yo? We had memorized all the mannerisms of the people that sang the parts in the song. They didn't make us do it every day, but every kid of the 80s and 90s were forced to sing this song at some point. 66 million copies of Thriller sold to date. Holy shit. That's insane. He's also one of only 18 EGOT winners. EGOT meaning Emmy, Grammy, Oscar turd. I've won a turd, <laughs> at least. I've more. I've won more turds than than everyone. He has seven kids, six grandkids, one great grandkid. That's like the most conservative stat in his life. <laughs> seven kids and only six grandkids. What's up with your kids, Quincy? It's like you fucked for all of them, and they're just tired. <laughs> Daddy did all the fucking motherfucker shit. One great, one great grandkid. Wow. And folks, that's the movie Quincy. Quincy. Not to be confused with the TV show Quincy. I honestly thought at first this was about the restaurant chain from the 80s with the big, thick <laughs> steak fries. I would like to see a documentary about that. And I'm having a feed to Quincy right now. Or that uh, town in Massachusetts, which the locals called Quincy. It's just that Eastern Massachusetts way of Do talking. Do you remember the TV show Quincy? Yeah. It used to come on. Jack Klugman, Jack, right? Yeah, Jack Klugman. Yeah. The forensics guy. It was the first forensics TV show ever done. So it was the predecessor of CSI and all the shit that we have to deal with now on CBS. This movie should have been about all those things we mentioned at once. <laughs> That'd be great. But that was the film Quincy by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks. Now, Kill, we don't rate in a star rating scale. 
that's that track on Thriller, like Girl Is Mine, where yeah. you're like, oh my god. We rate in the Herzog rating scale, the Quint, the prolific Quincy Jones like rating scale. <laughs> These are getting worse. <laughs> you're gonna give this one through five Herzogs. I'm gonna give this one through five Herzogs. That we are gonna combine them, like Quincy Jones's penis and a Swedish woman for best out of ten Herzogs. <laughs> What did you think of this movie? <laughs> Quincy. I enjoyed it. I grew up with a lot of Quincy Jones in the house. My mom listened to a lot of vinyl. She listened to a lot of jazz. Most of the jazz she listened to was more contemporary stuff. But we had the dude, Color Purple soundtrack was in there. Obviously off the wall, thriller. So I always knew between all that stuff, We Are the World, I always knew who Quincy Jones was. So for me, this was like a walk down memory lane which made it very nostalgic for me. But there was also a ton of stuff, like as far as I knew how prolific his career was, but I didn't realize how much shit, how many different corners of the music industry he had had his hands in. I didn't realize he had done so many movie scores. That's It sounds like to me, the number of compositions that he wrote for film sounds like it's on par with a John Williams, a James Horner, an Alan Silvestri, like all those guys that you are known for doing movie scores. I don't think a lot of people really think of Quincy Jones as a guy that does scores, um, which is a shame because based on the movies that he's done and some of the music I've heard, I know from those movies, some really, really good shit. I, and I, it made me actually, I went on Spotify earlier because I was like, I want to hear some of these soundtracks. Some of this shit sounds really, really awesome. Um, I knew going into it that his daughter was the one doing it. So I expected a sort of uh, a very a soft lens uh, that we would be looking at his life through. Totally fine with that. I don't necessarily always need to watch a documentary to hear about all the horrible shit that people may or may not have done in their life. For me, it was just, there was so much amazing shit that he did in his life that that was enough to, to fill the documentary. Focusing on his career, they honestly, they could have completely left out the personal life stuff I really wouldn't have cared. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff was sort of thrown in, obviously, because it was done by his daughter. But the most interesting stuff to me was just his career. His career has been just beyond amazing. This black kid from Chicago, the 30s, who just grows up to become arguably the, the most well-known producer on the planet. He was the beginning of the star producer. I feel like he was the... Before Quincy Jones came along, I feel like knowing like, you know, oh man, that's a Pharrell album. Or that was a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis album, or that was a, you know, that one was done by Kanye. Like that sense of like the hit making producer, I don't feel like became a common thing until Quincy came along. I think he was the beginning of all of that. I thought that it was a really well done editing. That I can't imagine the number of clips they had to go through to find stuff for this thing, because I'm sure there's a ton of shit out there. Um, but it was just the going back and forth. I thought the scenes were shot beautifully. I liked the sort of casual way that he was filmed i felt like he sort of let his guard down more i didn't feel like it was long enough that was really the biggest complaint that wow. i had i feel like there was more i wanted to know more about him more about his career i feel like they could have just taken a decade at a time and done because that's just how much shit he's churned out over the course of his lifetime it started to get kind of rushed toward the end i think that once you got to the point where he had you know his big awakening about trying to make the world a better place at that point they were sort of speeding through things because there's a lot of other stuff that happened during that period that i know about that didn't quite make the cut but you can't get it all in i thought the sound editing like the the music they used from his career 
um, during different scenes. I really enjoyed because his music, the shit is just on point. I mean, I'm going to give it, I think I'm going to give it a three and three quarters, which is a weird number to pick. 3.75. 3.75, but not quite at four. I thought you were going to go, everything you said, I'm I'm surprised you didn't hit a four. Well, the only, the only reason I'm not giving it a four is because of the fact that it still is a daughter's love letter to her father, which is great. But at the same time, there are certain things you're going to leave out. And I don't necessarily mean that they're bad things, but I feel like it's kind of like when I'm talking to my dad about certain things, I'm not going to push hard on certain things just because he's my dad. Like, especially if I got a camera with me as well, I'm, I don't want him to feel uncomfortable. You're saving that for your father. podcast, Pushing Hard on Dad. Yes. That's going to be dropping in February of 2019. Yeah, I'm psyched. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's just me sitting with my dad. And a special guest pushing hard on yeah, your dad. Yeah, total stranger. Always going to be someone <laughs> he's never met before. Asking him some really uncomfortable questions about his life and some of the things that he's probably really ashamed of. Wow. That's what we're going for. Um, obviously, it's going to be a comedy. I'm laughing already. <laughs> she so gave yeah. it a 3.7. So I'm going to give it a 3 points. It's, it's close to a 4, but I feel like... I just wanted more. We touched more on the history of his career because it's kind of the easiest to tackle from our angle. But I really felt like the emotional daughter stuff did resonate quite a bit with me. It's just hard for us to translate those emotions in a way, but those are very prominent. And I did appreciate that it wasn't some generic talking heads. Sit this person in a room and they say like the same fucking soundbite over and over and over again. It wasn't like that. I was very thankful for that because that would have been very boring. It's interesting that you say you didn't feel like it was long enough. It was about two hours and seven minutes total. I don't know if I needed it to be longer, but it didn't feel like it was as long as it was for me. I was pretty enthralled with every step of this guy's career. The Quincy Jones I know is off a wall and forward. I didn't know really shit prior to that. But as they go through his life and I hear all these songs that I never thought to associate with him, and it kind of makes sense because you're hearing the evolution of his style throughout his career, too. This guy is just a fucking indisputable genius Motherfucker. who had a mastery of music that a lot of people spend all of their lives on not being able to achieve. It's just no wonder that this guy is the guy that big celebrities name drop. I thought it was handled very well. I assume that Alan Hicks had a lot to do with a lot of the stuff that wasn't specifically what you know Rashida was shooting directly. I'm sure Rashida had input. She did co-write this. But a lot of this editing stuff and the way it was put together, very, very well edited film. Probably one of the, the best edited films we've seen mm -hmm. this year on the documentaries. Yeah. There was pandering, but it's like you kind of can't help but pander fucking to fucking Quincy Jones. <laughs> And they acknowledge that he wasn't maybe a great dad. He wasn't a great husband. They do acknowledge that. It was profound watching him deal with his mother, talk about his mother. Without this movie, I don't think we ever would have known about that shit. I don't know if this movie could have been done much better. Maybe, like you said, it could have been a little longer. I probably wouldn't have minded if it was. But I think what I got was more than what I expected. I kind of was hoping was afraid I was going to be a little bored, and I wasn't. I'm a little surprised. I'm going to give this a 4.25. Nice. So that makes it, with your 3.75 and my 4.25... Let me out the calculator. 8 out of 10 herd socks. And I think that's a... That's a, that's the highest we've ever... Oh, had the highest that we've done? We've done together, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think this is a solid 8 out of 10. Yeah. Totally. I kind of thinking I should have said 4 now. 
I mean, you can change. I mean, is it too late? Can you change? Can you? It can be eight point two five if you want. That just sounds weird. <laughs> no one likes the no one likes the quarters. Yeah. But me. Eight, eight out of ten is great. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good. Rec- a highly recommended movie. I watched it twice. You watched it twice and thought it wasn't long enough. So that's the 2018 film Quincy by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks about Quincy Delight Jones the second. Shit. Netflix needs to do a, a sequel called Quincy QD3 about his son. His son. It's like a seven minute documentary. In, <laughs> a short. <laughs> QD3 baby. Coming at you from Sweden. All right, folks. We got an eight out of ten Herzog film. Not too shabby. Oh! <laughs> Go watch Quincy. Shamon! If you haven't yet. <laughs> and uh, moonwalk your way into my heart. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's late and it's long. It's it always late. fucking long ah, with us. This was, my, this was totally on me. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm totally sorry. This was my fault. You had to talk about the whiz. (laughs) The whiz went you took you down an intense. You brought it up, man. And then I had to add on that Joel Schumacher wrote it and shit. And then I had to make you guess who wrote it. (laughs) Anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Oh Jesus. The goal is to do a one hour. That's the goal. We gotta do one hour next time. Next time, one hour. If for no other reason, just to prove to ourselves that we can do an hour. We can. We can do it. We can. Yes. All right, Akil, thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Go watch Quincy and keep on docking. Hey, you do the Quincy Jones voice. You read this list. I'm not trying to do anybody's voice. Read this list. You do Quincy voice. Go on. So we're going to invite Jaleel White, Reginald Vell Johnson. He's dead, Quincy. Not to me, a fuck, fuck that girl. <laughs> Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson. John Lee Malvo, Widow Smith. Not a crazy-ass brother. That dude who played Washington on Welcome Back, Carter. I don't know what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Motherfucker. Hey, This is me. You know what? Nights alone Since you went away think about you all through the day my buddy
to see. I love you, man. I love you.